The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. It's good to have you in our company as uh, we look at the big money stories from around the world today. Um, And there's been some very big ones, some game-changing announcements today as well in terms of the shape of the world, particularly as it comes to Evergrande. Evergrande, the big Chinese property company, ordered into liquidation. EPSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. EPSA is a registered FSP. We'll also talk about the um, decision by the Human Rights Commission to find nobody in particular liable for the riots of July 2021. The fact that they happened, the fact that they happened in full public gaze, the fact that they happened to be instigated on social media and there were some very high-profile instigators who've never been called to account uh, means we don't have an outcome and it's a, a very frustrating place to be. We'll talk about the mining at Darbo, we'll talk tech with Toby and we'll talk coaching later on if you consider have you ever had a coach a business coach uh, and uh, what about life coaching i think life coaching is fairly common i wonder how many people admit to getting coached in business how many ceos would admit to being coached um and it is a particularly fraught world of snake oil salesmen and all kinds of charlatans but at its heart there is an incredibly valuable process that is being taught and we will learn about it on the money show later the Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. It's taken more than two years and the Human Rights Commission's finally delivered a diagnosis of the July 2021 riots that caused tens of billions of rands worth of damage. It undermined South Africa's already fragile confidence levels. There's a 252-page report. It says the violence was orchestrated, but it doesn't know who started it. And here's the clangor. There's no evidence that the jailing of Jacob Zuma for contempt of the Constitutional Court contributed to the riots. It's an odd finding when you consider the vast swathes of available information in the public domain. Rebecca Davis is a Daily Maverick journalist who is wading her way through the initial pages of that enormous report. And I suppose the burden of legal proof is bigger than the burden of journalistic proof in this particular matter, Rebecca, which is why a lot of people will find this particular finding um, quite surprising. It's disappointing, Bruce, I think. You know, the magnitude of those events, let's not forget, 50 billion worth of damage, 353 people dead. I think possibly we would want more than a report which says, well, quite a lot of nothing, in my humble opinion. So what the report says is that there are multiple factors which potentially came to to play, came to a head together, rather, and that many of them were social, economic and political, that the country was just struggling at the time with COVID lockdown. We were on adjusted level four that it's a very unequal society, that all these things came together. And then there was the fact that President Jacob Zuma was about to be incarcerated. The country was facing this unprecedented moment where a former head of state was going to go to jail. And these things came together, but in a way that is not entirely clearly described in order to cause this conflagration that was the 2021 July riots. So you, we have this situation where... The, you know, these hearings were fairly extensive. They carried on for sure, a, a good few months, about uh, eight months, I think. There was a, a three-person panel, Andrew Gaum, Chris Nissen, Felida and Tuli. And what they have concluded, as you've rightly kind of summarized, is that 
this happened, but we're not sure why and we're not sure who did it. <laughs> okay, so we've just spent the last, I don't know, two years, more than two years, telling us what we already know, that we suspect who was to blame. We suspect the reasons why it was to blame, but there's absolutely no tangible legal burden of proof that any of those things either did or didn't or coincided to uh, culminate in the riots. And all of those things are to a greater or lesser degree, I'm sure, contributors to this. They do say, and this is interesting, that there was significant investment in the execution of the July 2021 riots. Now, if you've got a half-decent auditor tracing the significant investment, surely you would trace the origin of the funds. And I'm not too sure if you've got far enough into the report or whether the report tackles whether there's been a forensic trail on the money, because generally that will take you to the originator of this big idea. That's interesting, because I'm not sure that by investment they mean financial. I mean, I should add that the the whole tone is quite... um the word lyrical literary you know it's called july's people uh the the report oh, in an homage sake. to nadine gordimer and it draws no. these parallels quite quite um quite loose ones i feel with nadine gordimer's book what it does say unequivocally bruce and i think this is you know vaguely vaguely important is that this didn't just this wasn't just poor people rising up to loot food that there were agitators there were what they call primary actors and secondary actors the primary actors, again, unfortunately unnamed, are those who were instigating this violence for their own purposes. The secondary actors are, you know, I suppose the disempowered people who joined in the looting because of desperation, because other and people were doing it, yeah. etc. Yeah. And because they could. But they, they do firmly find that it's not that these events happened sporadically and in a diffuse and discreet fashion. They were coordinated, they were orchestrated, and it remains, they say, the burden of the police and the National Prosecuting Authority, if you'll let me speak above your audible half. Um, it is the job of the police and the MPA to determine who done it. Okay. I mean, I don't mean to be horrible to the Human Rights Commission. I'm sure they're perfectly nice people, and I'm sure they did their very best with limited resources. But for goodness sake, it's a poor outcome. And they've, they've essentially wasted a huge amount of time to tell us absolutely nothing of value. It's hard not to feel that way. I mean, the report does include a kind of rap on the knuckles, which any normal person, I think, could have delivered to the South African intelligence forces for having failed to notice that this was about to happen to the police, etc. It includes recommendations on, uh, for instance, policing in this environment, and it goes into the racial dynamics, which could be useful, I suppose. You know, there's still quite a bit of uncertainty about those awful events that happened in places like Phoenix and Chatsworth, where yeah. it did seem to be kind of racially motivated violence. That is useful, I think, to unpack. I have not yet delved into the, you know, the fine-grained testimony around that. But we do know the high-level outcome is, as you've discussed, this was a bad thing. We don't know who did it or why. Astonishing. Thank you very much, Rebecca Davis, Daily Maverick journalist this evening, who's begun to delve into this. This notion of a significant investment, and if you know there's a significant investment, and I mean, I'm glad that they have a go at the police and uh, uh, the nation's intelligence services, because there must have been chatter, there must have been noise around this thing that was either ignored willfully or through omission, um, and that you know the socio-economic conditions of the of the majority of South Africans were a major factor in the spread of the unrest, and that makes absolute sense. Yes. and But again, nothing new in that. These conditions were not the cause. I think we knew that as well. I, I feel less settled now.
that I know what I know that they've told us, which is nothing new. And we are no closer, therefore, to getting any sort of sense as to who to hold accountable precisely for those rights, which were clearly orchestrated, clearly planned, clearly executed and fanned by forces unknown. Astonishing. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. So when you go into liquidation, can you keep your secrets? Well, it would seem so. Caroline James is advocacy coordinator at Amabungani. And we're trying to figure out what on earth happened at Steinhoff and how the Steinhoff implosion happened. We know there's a great big fat PwC report, Caroline. But even in liquidation, um, we're not getting the clarity that we might have hoped to get uh, in terms of the, the, the collapse of Steinhoff and how it all played out, why it played out, and again, who is ultimately liable for it? Caroline James was there a moment ago. Then Caroline James disappeared. But Caroline James has returned. Sorry, Caroline, I don't know if you heard all of that. Um, <laughs> this, yeah, fighting from the grave, it would seem, even though it is in liquidation. Um, there are still legal processes which provide protection not only to the company, but for the people who were instrumental in its collapse. Absolutely. I really like that phrase, sort of fighting from the grave, because I think for us it just seems unbelievable that this company that is barely existing and has sort of various little holding companies that have been established just to facilitate and coordinate the liquidation of it is still fighting tooth and nail to prevent the most comprehensive analysis into why it is in that position from being made public. And, you know, as as we all know, so many people suffered such incredible losses from the collapse of Steinhoff and for them to just keep their secrets as they you know, plunge into the depths is, is sort of mind-boggling. Uh, this is part of a bigger process, right? Because yourselves and the financial mail, Rob Rose, who wrote the book on Steinhoff, made an appeal um, to the courts, and the courts uh, granted an order um, that Western Cape, um, no, there was, a, there was a court order that suggested that you may be getting access to the PwC report, but now that is on appeal, correct? Absolutely. So, as you say, we had initially made requests to have access to that PwC report, which Steinhoff refused, and we then took it took them to court. And at that stage, Steinhoff was arguing that they couldn't release the report because it had be it was legally privileged. They said that their lawyers had engaged PwC in advance of potential litigation that may come out as a ra- result of the accounting irregularities. And the court found that there was absolutely no justification for for the legal privilege because. The report had simply not been engaged, you know, initiated for that. I mean, if you if you read Rob Rose's book, if you watch Steinheist on Showmax, you can see Christian Visser saying that as soon as he heard there were things wrong, he would he got in touch with PwC and wanted to get them to understand what was going on. So that was the first example of this really odd explanation for why they couldn't make the report public, which the court completely disagreed with, and as you say, ordered it to be made to us. And then then they appealed to the Supreme Court of Appeal. And now there's this other level of explanation for why they can't make it public. And now they're resorting to relying on European data privacy laws, saying that the report contains personal information of individuals and that because Steinhoff is registered in the Netherlands and now its holding company is registered in the UK, 
they would face liability if they released the report, which we've demonstrated through expert affidavits that that simply is a misunderstanding of that European law. Do we understand why there is this, I mean, true, I mean, this is a real rearguard action here. This is a company um, who no longer employs any of the people who might be implicated in this particular disaster. And it was a disaster, the biggest ever corporate fraud in South African history. Yet the people who are liable for it are therefore, by implication, being protected uh, and are, are free to be move about in public, free as the driven snow, with absolutely no repercussions whatsoever. They they will claim that they are innocent of anything wrong, um, and the matter is going to, you know, if it ever comes to the courts, because we know that the South African justice system grinds incredibly, incredibly slowly. If it ever comes to the courts, uh, you know whether or not there will ever be justice served. Absolutely, and I think that's that's part of the problem is because. Steinhoff has been associated so much with the persona of Marcus Euster. It's easy to sort of allege that it was just him pulling the strings and weaving this complicated web and that no one else knew what was going on. And we really do believe that the PWC report would demonstrate whether that is the case, whether there were other people involved who were assisting him or at least facilitating him or not doing their due diligence and acting the way they should to prevent that from happening. And I think that, as you say, they're just, firstly, Yurta is, you know, sitting in Hermanus without facing any consequences for what we know that he did. But then there are other people who we simply don't really even know who they are, who could be, you know, working in other, other corporates, sitting on boards, making decisions that have financial implications for other pension holders and investors. And we simply do not know who is holding this power and where the risks for another Steinhoff might be. Uh, and so, I mean, this is a process that is what now heading into its seventh year, I think, since the collapse of Steinhoff. Um, the, the PwC report is, pro- is nearly as old as that. Uh, and it is, by all accounts, very technical. It is, by all accounts, very thorough. Um, and while you may get to the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Appeal may agree with the High Court and say, release the report, this is a new stumbling block which has been brought in at where European law now is being brought into the, the arguments to obfuscate this thing and, and complicate it even further. Well, absolutely. But I think that it's also possible that this is just brought in as a sort of uh, obfuscation that... In, in fact, this European law is not relevant to the case. That it's who, can just decide, another who can decide element. on that? Who can, who can say, no, that's a spurious action, that is a, an action of desperation, if in fact it is, um, and if the Supreme Court in South Africa rules that the report should be made public, then it should be handed over to you. How complicated a process is, it, is that to say, hold on a second, we, we, we're calling your bluff on this one? Oh, she was there a moment ago. Oh, well, we'll have that conversation another day. Uh, Caroline, you, you disappeared, but you came back. Um, can anyone call the, the, the bluff of Steinhoff on this one? Well, that's what is, that is what we're, we're attempting to do. We have filed mm. these affidavits before the Supreme Court of Appeal demonstrating how either the law doesn't apply, and if it does, it doesn't prevent the disclosure, and then it is up to the Supreme Court of Appeal to, to make that determination and... We hope that they they will find in our favour once again.
Okay. Uh, and But again, that happens at some point in this half of the year. There's no guarantee that even if they do find in your favor, that there won't be further obstacles thrown in your way because that is the clear intention. Is The clear intention, for whatever reason, is to try to ensure that this report never does see the, the light of day. I think that's a very fair assumption and everything that we've seen from what Steinoff has done to keep this report secret in the past implies that they are not going to go down without a fight again. So we're, we're readying ourselves for, for more elements to this, this fight for access. Caroline James, thank you very much indeed. Advocacy Coordinator at Amabungani this evening here on The Money Show. Two legal stories, two completely different angles on those legal stories and two frustrating outcomes so far anyway. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. To Merrill Pick we go. Merrill is a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. And when Evergrande was publicly revealed to be in trouble three years ago, it sent shockwaves through markets. Today we've got a court in Hong Kong saying that Evergrande should be liquidated. And the shockwaves are not present. It's uh, almost as if this was an inevitable outcome of a, a tragic story of a property bubble in China that's been allowed to, to burst. Absolutely, Bruce. Good evening and good evening to your listeners. There's a muted response um, today. The natural place to look would be the China sensitive shares such as Tencent and the diversified miners looking at the commodity prices. Um, And um, there's not a marked response today. I think it's been clear that the Chinese government has had several chances to step in and stimulate, re-stimulate um, the property sector. Certainly, if they had wanted to orchestrate a bailout for Evergrande, they would have done so by now. Um, one of the themes that we've had as a negative theme for commodities is actually the peak of this property cycle in China and most likely going to be a protracted um, slowdown in, in, in that sector, which will weigh on commodity demand. It was quite strange today to look at all of the sectors on the JSE. The one sector that actually held up quite well was local property shares. And, um, you know, I, I found that ironic considering the scale of, of what is being proposed in Hong Kong for, for Evergrande. Certainly. Um, property sector in South Africa has naturally been um, underperforming, has been underperforming for quite some time and is coming off quite a, um, a battered base, shall we say. And I think um, although we didn't see any talk of rate cuts um, in this in this past, at this past NPC meeting, looking ahead um, for South Africa, certainly it feels like um, a matter of time and we should see rate cuts at some point this year, which would be positive for all the interest rate um, sectors and in particular there are certain segments of SA property where there is a lot of value on the table. In that environment, though, in an environment where the South African economy, of course, is going nowhere in a hurry, where we're seeing vacancies rise in some shopping centres, not all, um, it, it just it strikes me that this is a very fragile environment to be building any kind of real case for optimism until we get a, a clear sense of how aggressive the Reserve Bank is prepared to be in reducing interest rates and, and when, in particular, yes. it will do so. Yes, 
Yes, I think the timing of cuts as well as the scale of cuts will matter. Um, it's not entirely dependent on our own economy. Um, the Reserve Bank will be looking to the Federal Reserve in the U.S. Um, in order to stay in sync and protect um, the RAND. Um, but, you know, astonishingly, when we look at a lot of the retail um, trading updates and, and results that we've seen over the last six months, there seems to be a rather resilient, no pun intended, commitment to add space. Um, space is still growing around half percent, one one percent, still ticking along. So, um, you know, whether that is um, a further consolidation of the sector or whether it's a response to new space that is actually being added, um, you know, time would, would actually tell. The load shedding base is a bit easier going into this year and that certainly hit both retailers and landlords alike. Um, so cash flows should be incrementally better um, going into 2024. And any any alleviation on the interest bill um, falls to the bottom line. And again, for I mean, you, you're a specialist in the retail sector. You look at the retailers very closely. They've all come out with trading updates in the last 10 days or so. We get a picture of a really battered, a really um, bruised retail sector, but a sector that is, seems to have managed the considerable pressures of the last three and a half years quite effectively in terms of weathering the, the, the difficulties around electricity, weathering uh, the South African consumer's um, de- decline and weathering this very high inflation and interest rate environment that we all have to endure. But they seem to be enduring it better than most. Yes, and the question is whether this is going to be the trough year, right? Yeah. Um, perhaps everyone is optimistic in, in January, and um, as the year unfolds, we, we might be disappointed. But there are some reasons to be optimistic for this year. Um, we do expect to see peak interest rates, although calling the exact timing is difficult. Um, the instances of stage four, stage six, the threat of stage eight load shedding seems to have dissipated for now. Um, although attention has shifted to port congestion, you know, so there's yeah. always an issue. Um, and I think what we see with the African retail sector, both in food and clothing, these sectors are quite olig- oligopolistic. Um, so the weakest, more independent, um, you know, franchisees or single store owners, those are the ones that fall over first. And um, some of the small scale M&A might continue just to prop up um the earnings line. So we saw Truer's report today, um, quite strong cash sales, very flat credit sales, but they are in control of that and can certainly open the taps if we see um, interest rates um, falling later in the year. So they have all weathered the storm, very weak sales growth. It hasn't been a great place to be, but they have um, survived potentially the toughest part of the cycle. It's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, they've done okay, um, but they need a little uplift. Uh, we all do. Meryl Peck, who's a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Thank you, Meryl, uh, for joining us this evening on The Money Show. Bringing us to half past six in the very latest Eyewitness News, here's Maki Malapo. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show on this Monday evening. I am Bruce Whitfield and markets had a terrible day today. 74,370 on the All Share Index, wiping out 
one of last week's uh, three days of superlative gains. Um, it's an unforgiving place. We're going to chat to Dwayne Newman in a moment, the sustainability tax partner at EY, as we head towards probably the, one of the biggest weeks on the commercial calendar in Cape Town, which is the mining in Daba. Kicks off next week and all preparations are getting underway there. On your next Money Show, Warren Ingram, the co-founder at Galileo Capital, talking about how to handle the transition to retirement. It comes as a shock to many and the steps you need to consider to make it as stress-free as possible. Diana Games at Africa at Work helps us with the Africa Business Report. We'll also cover all of the biggest money stories of the day, of course. Make sure that you get to hear them here on The Money Show. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Well, Cape Town building up for the mining Yadaba extravaganza kicks off in the city next week and mining, like every industry, is being expected to improve its methods and have less of a negative impact on the environment. EY's sustainability tax partner, Dwayne Newman, is going to lead EY's delegation at the Indaba. And it's, it's very hard, I think, Dwayne, to suggest a green agenda when mining, by its very nature, blows up the countryside. It uses huge amounts of water and chemicals to extrude minerals. Clearly, it's a, I don't know, question of relative impact rather than absolute impact. Yeah, hi, Bruce. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, well known that the mining industry has quite a, um, a negative impact on the environment. But I think there's, there's obviously a lot of pressure from governments and stakeholders to make sure that they reduce the, um, that impact and have a positive impact um, on the environment by the t- when they when they leave and they, and, they, and, they, and they move away from that mining operation. So we can see that in obviously what's coming out of Europe um, in terms of the EU Green Deal. We can see that coming out of America with the Inflation Reduction Act, and you can see the enormous amounts of money um, that are getting put into um, the mining industry and the green transition. I mean, I was looking at the numbers the other day that's the, uh, uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act. It's over like $500 billion. I mean, to put that in perspective, that's more than the GDP of Nigeria and um, South Africa um, every year. So there's just enormous amounts of money going into the green transition. Um, And I think it's really important for Africa uh, to to make sure that they don't lose their place um, um, on this uh, green transition journey. Uh, absolutely, because we, we look at mining, we look at its impact, we look at the uh, what, what's been the sort of legacy of mining in South Africa when regulation was non-existent and then barely existent and certainly not adhered to. And just the consequences of the abandoned mines all along the old reef, for example, and the, how those have been open to re-exploitation, of course, by uh, the illicit mining industry. And then just the, the acid water in the mines and all of the, the, the environmental consequences of mines that were never properly shut down, never properly shut it, never properly uh, given any sort of restoration. I think that pressure is real and is actually in force and playing out positively in the mining industry. And I mean, we can see that coming out of uh, the recent EY top business risks and opportunities for the mining industry for 2024. What's top of the list, top of the pile for the third year in a row? Um, ESG. Um, No surprise there. And I think it just shows you how much pressure the mining industry is under obviously from a risk perspective, but also from an opportunity perspective. Um, I've spent also a lot of my time in the automotive industry, and you can go to um, auto conferences these days, and what are they talking about? Um, EVs, transition, critical minerals. So there's a big convergence between the mining industry and uh, industries such as the automotive industry, 
And we're even seeing um, automotive companies buying into mines to make sure that they uh, secure those critical minerals that need they yeah. need for the, the automotive, the, the cars of the future. Uh, and so many of those critical minerals, of course, are available in different parts of the African continent, including some in South Africa. And one of the great yep. fears is there is such an arms race or a minerals race, a critical minerals race, let's do that rather, that the consequences for the environment may be pushed to the back of the agenda while companies try to secure access and then mine as quickly as possible to get the lithiums and the bidibidims and all of the other critical, it's a technical one, uh, all of the other critical minerals that are necessary for the production of electric vehicles because even though electric vehicles may not have the same level of on-road emissions the path to getting to them is filthy yes i think that, i mean there's, a, there's obviously a race for the capital right but i think um with what's coming out of these surveys the, like the ey surveys where capital um has got more and more ESG and climate change issues when they are um, giving out finance. So we've seen more green bonds being issued um, across the world. So I think green is becoming more and more of an issue. And I would expect that to come into the mining industry in Africa as well. Um, When I was reading some quotes around some CEOs of large corporations where they're saying that when they design a new mine, it has to be net zero from 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 the from the design phase, as opposed to now, I mean, a lot of mining miners are really struggling with retrofitting, trying to go off grid, and that's really really hard to do when you initially uh, put the mine up and put the design up. Um, all these issues were not issues ten, twenty, thirty years ago. Yeah. No, exactly right. So I think mining's moving in the right direction. I mean, there was a time where we didn't believe that fatality-free mining was an option in South Africa. One of the great outcomes post-1994 has been a considerably safer, not safe, not completely fatality-free or injury-free, but a considerably safer mining environment. It comes with additional costs and it comes with additional care and additional governance and additional oversight. But we've made mining safer for humans to work underground and to work in open-cast mining. It's got to be possible to make it a less impactful industry on the environment if we just look at doing it differently? Yeah, I, mean, I, think I think you have to, right? Yeah, I mean, the, that whole concept of license to operate is obviously a really big issue for, uh, for mining companies. Um, and governments are putting a lot of pressure of when you want to be setting up a mine in the country, uh, what are you going to do here? Um, even in South Africa, we obviously talk about this whole concept of just transition as well. Um, and I think the, the, I think the big challenge for, uh, for business is there's lots of money coming out of governments um, at a say EU level, a US level. We've also got the carbon markets. I mean, despite all the noise around the carbon markets, I mean, it's a finance instrument and um, we can see the projections of how big the carbon market's going to get for Africa specifically, probably um, uh, sort of uh, north of $50 billion a year in funding and if miners are not thinking carefully when they're structuring their mining, um, their new mining operations, they'll miss out on those, uh, those incentives and they are carrots as I, as I call them. Thank you very much to Dwayne Newman, who is EY's sustainability tax partner, leading that uh, team. I was going to say delegation, but it sounds too political. That team uh, to the mining in Darba happening in Cape Town next week. Lots more. I'm sure we'll talk about mining over the next couple of uh, couple of weeks. Bruce Whitfield on the Money Show, six to eight p.m.
I detest vapes. I'm sorry. If you're a vape salesperson or somebody who loves a little vape, I'm really pleased to see governments around the world starting to act against their sale, particularly again to, to minors. The UK banning disposable vapes as part of their plans to tackle the rising number of young people taking it up as a pastime. The Prime Minister in the UK, Rishi Sunak, suggesting adult smokers who are trying to quit my will still be able to get access to some vaping products. But the ban on the throwaway variety will dramatically limit access and I'm sure will have good environmental consequences as well. Because what do people do once they've sucked whatever the stuff is inside the juice, the steam, the mist, the flavor, the chemicals, whatever they are, what do they do? They toss them aside and these things litter everywhere. Let's get on to uh, tonight's tech with Toby. Toby Shepshack, the chief at Stuff Studios. Uh, more noise-cancelling headphones, Toby. Everybody's making noise-cancelling headphones. What makes the sure noise-cancelling headphones so worthwhile? I, I almost want to say what, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very poor joke, I'm sure. Um, you know, I, I can't get enough of noise-cancelling headphones, Bruce, and I've had this experience multiple times. Many, many years ago, uh, the headphones I was using at the time were Sennheiser, and my battery ran flat about four hours from the from from New York and I remember climbing the walls and I and I've obviously forgotten that because in December I had to do a talk in Durban and I thought Ach, I'm testing this nice new compact laptop bag uh, I'll just take my iPad and I won't take noise cancelling headphones and I'll use my earbuds and it was a disaster because you're just not conscious of how much external noise there is in an airport and in a plane and 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 that's the profound thing that that adds to our stress. I mean, I remember reading research in the 80s about what happened to kids going into shopping malls and these kids would just go berserk because there was so much oral and auditory stimulation that, that they just didn't know how to process it. And I, and, I, and I feel the same in an airport. You know, if there, there's so much so-called white noise that's just like a buzz behind the the regular noise we're, we're we kind of pick up on. Um, so I've always been a big fan of noise cancelling headphones and I've been trying out these Sure Aonic 50, the Gen 2 uh, wireless noise cancelling headphones. They're a really, really good product. They're not perhaps the best sound that, that you're going to get from a, from a set of high-end audio cans, but they do have the best uh, parametric EQ in the, in the app that comes okay. with them. The parametric app, EQ. That gives you a lot of control. What's parametric EQ? Uh, it's a big fancy word that says you can adjust the volume and you, the bass and <laughs> okay. you can push the it sound. up and down. I just, I just wanted, you know, to, to pretend I was in government for like 15 and a half seconds, Bruce, and, and, and use a big word so that you think I'm smarter than you. Uh, well, we know that, but we were just uh, checking the meaning of what you were talking about and whether you could explain it. Um, so the, other than parametric EQ, which is something I shall drop into conversation often in future, um, the, the <laughs> fact that the at price point of nine and a half thousand rand this is expensive and if the sound quality isn't the best in the market then what is it that you're paying for on these headphones when you can get bose for less you can get sennheiser for less you can get sony for a lot less you can get all kinds of offerings for less than the the sure aonic 50 gen 2 
Well, I, well, I, what I should say is that is the person who feels that you know the sound quality is not the best I've heard is our is our audio snob uh, yeah, at yeah. stuff who is uh, is the deputy editor Duncan Pike. I often call him McFly because I say to him, you know, I need my homework, McFly, for Bruce's show. You know, what have you tested? That's amazing. Uh, I'd already tested these, and he's been busy testing them. So, so he's the one who wasn't that impressed with them. I th- I thought they were pretty good. Uh, I like that they've got USB-C charging. And in fact, you can listen to them while you're charging. Ah. And obviously, because it's a wired connection, not wireless, you get a better sound quality. But what's also impressive, Bruce, is you get 45 hours of battery life. Now, that's a trip to the States and back. Yeah. Uh, and if you, if you want, you know, a quick charge for just 15 minutes, you get five hours of use. So, so impressive features amongst many other things. Really good battery life. Works well with consoles. There's, there's, there's so-called multi-point support. So, you know, you can, you can connect, connect it to a, a bunch of, of uh, of devices and it's got a very wide range of codecs which is uh, are the, uh, the 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 software algorithms the APIs that people use to encode and decode uh, digital audio and it's and it's very good. I mean, Bruce, you'd be you you know you you'd obviously know that 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 it even uses Sony's LDAC no, of course. Uh, for high res streaming. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if Bruce. you don't do that, then what are you doing in the what are we talking about? Noise cancelling headphone business. Um, in, but, but, exactly. yeah, but, but at nine and a half grand for a pair of noise cancelling headphones versus other brands that come in 20%, 30% cheaper, why are they worth this money versus other brands in the space? Quality, Bruce, and and there's a there are a lot of people who are really willing to pay for the quality. Sure's known primarily, I would say, as a microphone brand, and and yeah. I'm speaking to you on a Sure microphone, the uh, MV7. It's a you know, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant device. So so the the quality of what they what they produce is is fantastic, um, and they're of course also known for their headphones and their their specifically their monitor headphones and their they they're beloved of of audio professionals, you know, or the, the, uh, sound engineers whose you know life depends on the quality of their microphones and their headphones. So it's a very good combination. My problem with them, Bruce, is that they don't fold down very small. I, my 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 go to sets of headphones is still a pair of Sennheisers. I've reviewed them on the show before. And what I really like about them, apart from, you know, the excellent quality, they've got good battery life, they're USB, micro USB, which is frustrating. It's the last device I have that uses that old uh, cable. Um, they fold down very compactly and they and they have very easy to adjust you can adjust the volume. You can stop and start just by tapping the the right or the left uh, uh, ear pad, mo- mostly the right, and and that's that's highly convenient when you're on a plane, you're listening to things. I bought a little plug-in that you can plug into the into the headphone jack of the plane if you want to, so you can use Bluetooth on or uh, oh. uh, to watch whatever's on that's the good. on the plane itself. Yeah, that's a that's a handy feature. I'll talk about that next week. It's a it's a really useful thing uh, for the next time you go to the the to Davos, Bruce. No, don't, let's not talk about that. We don't talk <laughs> about things that don't happen. <laughs> Toby Shapshack, I'm going to miss him. Shame, miss you, Toby. Goodbye, uh, Toby Shapshack, the chief of the stuff studios, dredging up.
the pain. Um, yeah, so Toby Shoptech, thank you, Toby. He joins us every Monday night up until today uh, to talk about tech. And one of his favorite things, because he does travel a lot, is noise-canceling headphones. These are the Shure Aonic 50 Gen 2 wireless noise-canceling headphones. It's a competitive space. These ones come in at nine and a half grand. They're renowned for good sound quality, low, and also the noise-canceling features. And if you've ever had noise-canceling headphones on in a noisy place it is astonishing absolutely astonishing you can be having a conversation with somebody you disable the noise cancelling feature you can hear them through the music and whatever it is that you're listening to and then you tap your headphone you apply the noise cancelling feature and it's all pictures and no words and that can be useful if you're losing the argument for example um you may want to in, 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 do that feature and say tell me so i don't know how this works i can't switch them off i can't i can't switch them off and you shout like that, like that person does when they pretend that they can't hear what somebody is saying. After Eyewitness News, we're going to be talking about the state of the wine industry. I'm also going to talk to you about job cuts at some of the world's most famous companies. There is an interesting signal being sent there, so we'll look at it after Eyewitness News now at 7. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106FM. Absa CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you the money show. Absa is a registered FSP. Uh, talk about jobs and job cuts. We'll talk about wine and a fall in South African wine sales. We'll talk about a book by an interesting character. It's an interesting topic and it's delivered in an interesting way. And we'll talk to John Fraser, who has reviewed many, many books for Business Day uh, about this particular tome. And then at half past seven this evening, How I Make Money with Janine Arles. Janine is the academic director and senior lecturer at the Center for Coaching at the UCT Graduate School of Business. I'll explain why. We've got Janine in this evening. I find the world of coaching very, very interesting. And uh, I look forward to picking her brain on how coaching does and should actually work. Interesting from a jobs market perspective. So the U.S. stock market keeps breaking records. The economy is moving at a decent lick and interest rate cuts haven't even started yet. However, there's some very worrying developments in the employment picture in the United States, which continues to create new jobs at a, a very impressive rate. But a lot of companies that expanded rapidly in recent years have been cutting back. And so um, you've got, for example, uh, Amazon, which has just terminated its acquisition of a vacuum cleaner um, called iRobot. It's going to lay off 31% of that workforce. Uh, and the deal valued at $1.4 billion. And the iRobot CEO has announced that he'll be stepping down. So it's all a bit of a mess. But Twitch has laid off 35% of its workforce. The board games company Hasbro, 20% of its workforce. Spotify, that provides podcasts, including this one, to millions of listeners around the world, 17% of its workforce. Levi's, the, the jeans makers, 15%. And others, Duolingo, if you've done Duolingo, you know it's wonderful. I wonder if these companies get overstaffed in the heyday and, the, and they anticipate better growth than they're going to get. It doesn't come. And then they're forced to cut back. Twitter slashed staff numbers. Countless of these tech companies have done precisely the same. But yeah, so it's not all a, a rosy picture of easy jobs and easy come, easy go. Well, it's easier go than come, it would seem at the moment in some companies. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. So that-
It's got an incredible wine industry. It's got an astonishing and interesting legacy. It has got an enormous potential to really challenge the global wine status quo. Yet, the value and volume of South African wine sold internationally is falling. Wines of South Africa says that's because of high inflation and high interest rates in its key export markets. Let's dig a little deeper, shall we? Marina Callow is, uh, works and speaks on behalf of Wines of South Africa. The value of exports, Marina, is down 17%. How does that compare with other countries that export into similar markets as our own? I saw, for example, Argentina was down like 27% last year. We're not amongst the worst. We're definitely not amongst uh, amongst the worst, Bruce. It is a trend that we are seeing across the wine category globally. Um, South Africa just posted our figures minus seventeen percent on volume, and it is you. You were telling us about all these people that have been laid off their jobs in your previous segment. Well, yeah. The reality is, consumers need to buy this wine, and wine is a luxury product at the end of the day. So if people are feeling the pinch as they are with inflation and interest rates and everything hitting us from every uh, side, you're going to let that luxury product go most likely. But what we're seeing is that most consumers, instead of buying two bottles of wine, they will buy one nice bottle of wine. And, And that's kind of what's keeping the industry afloat at the moment. So yes, this this world economic situation is having a major impact. Of course, geopolitics is is hitting us from the other side. And then, of course, in the local market uh, closer to home, we've got issues at our ports. We've got load shedding that's impacting on the input costs from our producer's side. So it's not the prettiest of pictures at the moment, unfortunately. And I've just been traveling around the Winelands this weekend and went to one or two spectacular places, as these places are, and see that mostly the harvest is done, that the 2024, this is 2024, right? 2024 vintages are already making their way to to be pressed and to then be fermented and ready for bottling later on in the year. And you wonder um, just how tough this year is going to be because the global economic environment is not improving. Um, And as a result, I, I I wonder what the prospects are for wine farmers this year. I I have to agree with you. I don't think 2024 is going to let up uh, in any way. We all have to tighten our belts. Um, Our wine farmers are going to do what they do every year. They're in the thick of harvest, as you rightly say. They will continue to produce top-end, top-quality wine that is fit for purpose in both local and export markets uh, where we are getting so much acclaim for the quality of our wine. Yeah. We really are at, uh, in such a wonderful place if you think about it that you know it's such a pity that it's at this exact same time where yeah. our wines are so highly regarded, especially internationally, that we're, we're, we're fighting against this global economy that everyone is is kind of trying to step step out of its way but we're never going to get get rid of it I, i've been looking as i do as a south african on my travels and i've done a bit of international travel in recent months through lots of airports in the middle east the uk looked at the uk retail sector go to the wine sections and find forgive me for pointing this out but the presence of south african wine is quite disappointing i see lots 
It's a famous labels, but not very good labels. Um, some labels are good, but the ranges that are on sale in the supermarkets aren't that good. And there's considerably better value at the price point of South African wine. Dare I say it from other countries, don't shoot me, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you my observations. Um, but it just feels like uh, South African wine is, is, wants to be competitive, but it is boxing with one hand behind its back. It's not being competitive price point for price point on the shelf for the consumer. And I wonder how much damage that is doing the sales picture. Yes, I think that's always the challenge. It's, it, and has been for quite some time since we entered the export market in the mid-90s. Um, South Africa was, was seen as the nation to provide cheap and cheerful wine, but that is definitely changing. And we're seeing this in the, the, the positive rand per litre that our wine is fetching. So despite this decline in volume, overall, if you compare the rand per litre and the rand per US dollar that we're actually receiving for our wine, it's not such a bad picture. It also depends on where you're doing your shopping. The airport is going to cater for mass market, as are most supermarkets. However, you look in the on-trade in restaurants as well as independent wine merchants, that's where you're going to find the really, really good stuff. And, and any true wine lover uh, or wine aficionado is going to search for their wines there rather than in the, the supermarkets at thank, Tesco thank, or Aldi. Thank you for Thank you for putting me back in my place and telling me where I sit in the social strata because I don't go to those places when I'm traveling. Maren, I don't know if you do, uh, but we must start talking about uh, salary points then, clearly. No, and, and again, I get it. And we, we have some really good performances by our top flight wines, absolutely. But my goodness be the markups. The markups, the markups are enormous. Yeah. And I get it. There are lots of duties. There are lots of export charges, all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, I just you know wonder um, if we are... If, you know, we went through a stage of South African wines being massively accepted. And Jancis Robinson, who's this fabulous wine writer uh, for the for for UK newspapers, and um, Tim What's His Face and others, giving South African wines such wonderful write-ups. And you would hope that that would translate to a huge favouring of South African wines. And uh, you know, when you read that stuff in mainstream media, and then the stuff that you're being sold on supermarket shelves isn't matching up to what you're seeing there, you go. Hold on a second. These wine writers are mad um, because you're not get that evidence isn't on the supermarket shelf. It's not on the supermarket shelf. You're absolutely right. But these retailers, you have to remember, they are pushing very, very hard on margin. That is the margin game. They're in the commodities game. And, and this is where they sit and they position themselves. The reality is South African wine has never been better before than, than it is now. Um, the quality is exceptional. And as you rightly say, whether it's Jancis or Tim Atkin or, or any of the, the big publications, um, they are all uh, shouting from the rooftops about the, the exceptional quality of wine that comes from the, 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 the furthest point of Africa. Um, so, so, yes, it's a reality. But... We also have to keep in mind here that South Africa only supplies and produces 4% of yeah. the wine in the world. We're actually guppies in a very big ocean, if you, if you come to think of it. So, you know, essentially what you do see on those supermarket shelves, it's, it's representative. It's not going to let us down. You're going to open that bottle of wine and you're going to have 
a lovely glass of, uh, of wine uh, and a, a lovely experience from that. If you want to spend a bit more, and this is really where the crux is, if you want to spend more than 10 euros, more than 10 uh, uh, pounds or $15 for a bottle of wine, that's where you come into the fun stuff, the really exciting stuff. And that's where the competition sits and should sit, rightly so, in order to come back to the producers who are in a very precarious position when it comes to financial sustainability. And this has been the case for quite some time. Um, so, you know, we're treading on this very, very interesting yet fine line of where we're at in the South African wine industry, what we're doing. Um, the, the, the decline in volume isn't too much of a concern for us at this particular point in time because our stock levels are at a really comfortable place if you okay, look at good. our competitors. Yeah. So, no, so we're not too concerned. Um, just remind me, Morena, just how do you make a small fortune in the wine industry? You start with a very big one. Exactly, Morena Callow. It's a thankless <laughs> industry. It really is thankless and it's hard. And th- there's so much amazing work being done, but I just find it so disappointing that the really, I mean, in terms of the wine, the, 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 the value that we have in our wines, even in our more expensive wines, even though we, uh, in our more expensive wines, the value is so good relative to the similar price point in other markets. Yet we just don't crack it. Just not crack it. It crack it to a degree, but not in a big bang kind of way, and that's I think a bit sad. Missed opportunities, perhaps. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. APSA's a registered FSP. The Money Show business books. My grandfather was adamant. There's nothing common about common sense, my boy, he would say. And I'm talking to the broadcaster and journalist John Fraser this evening. Uh, and he reviews books regularly. He even gave my book a nice review way back when. Tonight, though, reviewing a book called The Unconventional CEO's Destiny by Mario Pretorius. This Mario Pretorius name sounds very familiar, uh, John. He's an unconventional guy himself, right? Evening, Bruce. Yeah, he's he's one of these entrepreneurs, and you and I have uh, interviewed so many uh, executives and CEOs and financial directors and fallen asleep halfway through. Mario is one of these dynamos. He's he's really very, very, very well read. Embarrassingly well read. You you read his book, and it's got all these classical references, and <laughs> someone like me failed. Latin at the age of five and abandoned it. Uh, but Mario is more than just uh, just classical references. He's run companies. He's started companies. Um, he's been a shareholder in the Reserve Bank, for instance, and a very activist, interesting shareholder. And what, what he's tried to do in this series of five books, and, and we're now talking about the fifth, is, is to just give a few anecdotes, give a few ideas, give a few tips. It's not one of these... Uh, theses where you sit in a classroom and you're lectured at for hour after hour after hour. This is something you can just dip into, 
And there really are pearls of wisdom. Uh, and yeah, as you say, part of a series, you were involved in some of the early books uh, as an editor. So you know him well. You know that he's a bit of a, a maverick in his approach. Um, most CEOs like it when they they send their teams off to go and get MBAs and go get uh, corporate education at big universities and business schools. But my, uh, but Mario Pretorius looks like a guy who wants to throw away the rule book. And he really he says, you know, your common sense trumps business school dogma. Explain that idea for me, please. I mean, business school teaches rules. What does Mario Pretorius purport to teach? Well, he teaches the real world. He gives you real ideas. For instance, I'll I'll give you an example from the first of this series of books, which has stayed with me ever since I first saw it. And that was Mario's idea of every time he went off to meet a client, being a good Afrikaner, he would pick up a milk tat, a milk tart, take it along and just that simple gesture seemed to have uh, helped him to solidify relationships, to do deals. Um, and another very, very simple, very, very basic thing is that you know, when you go to work for Mario, he sits you down, he takes you to a computer, and he turns on a program to teach you to type properly. <laughs> now, I, I'm the old school of journalism where I... I I really never really learned shorthand very well. I never learned to type very well. But there are certain basic skills, particularly now in this this fourth industrial revolution we're going through, where being able to type is as important as being able to talk or eat. No, absolutely. And and Maria, (laughs) Maria looks at things like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's you know, and I suppose it's um, he's been successful and he's done he's done some amazing things. He uses very evocative language, very big language, and that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea because he uses the language of confrontation, the warlords of business, pirate thinking. Um, and just take me through the way in which he communicates his common what he calls common sense ideas. Well, if you've got to run a business, do you run a business to sit in a corner and get nowhere? Or do you go out there and rape and plunder? Obviously, not literally. Yes. But I think I think the point of, of the illustration of this uh, book, which has a, a, a fearsome-looking Viking on the cover, is that a CEO has to um, motivate his, his team or her team, team. has to take yes. them into a world which is very hostile and, and has to make sure that they do better than the opposition. And you've got to be canny, you've got to be bright, you've got to think out of the box. And that, that's what I like about this book. Um, you don't have to read it page one to page 100 or so. And it, it is a short, easily digestible book. You just dip into it, get an idea. And, and some of those ideas could and should stay with you. And and the good thing about common sense is that it can actually help you to run your business better. Uh, I wonder how, with a a new generation of young people coming into the workplace, I'm going to word this as diplomatically as I possibly can, where feelings are important, where inclusivity is important, where pronouns are important, where, you know, listening and caring are important, apparently, Um, whether his approach is one that will certainly get him a, a very dedicated band of equally-minded warriors, but certainly turn a lot of fairly talented but more difficult-to-manage people off coming to, to work with him. Well, Bruce, as a bright chap, you know you don't judge a book by the cover. <laughs> There's uh-huh. a Viking on the cover, and maybe that that's done to... to, to uh, secure sales, but there's a sensitive side to Mario oh, okay. Pretorius and there's a caring side. 
and there's there's an introspective side and you you obviously if if you're going to if you're going to go in there swinging your hammer <laughs> clubbing people you're not really going to get very work, very far in the world of business and as you say particularly not in this uh, work work culture where you can uh, trip over on on the slightest little uh, fault or error um so so have a look at the book um read it Reading, read a chapter or two. It's available on Amazon um, very, very reasonably. I don't get anything of the profits. I didn't get any profits from the first two I edited, but Mario has come up with so many ideas. Over five books, maybe a hundred pages each. A hundred ideas in each book. That's five hundred ideas. If one or two of them doesn't yeah, that's make the you a better CEO, then you're an idiot. No, exactly right. And I mean, I, you know, chatting. There's some CEOs who don't read business books. They say most books just contain one idea, and then that that idea is extrapolated across an entire book, and it gets very boring very quickly. But if this is a wild mm. and diverse in its thinking, then most certainly we shall have a listen. Uh, have a look at it. He self-publishes, of course, which is why it's not available in mainstream bookstores, but it is available online. Very much so. And um, I bought this one in, on Amazon and, and read it in a few hours. It's easily digestible, uh, just like that very nice South African wine you were talking about earlier. Uh, and milk tart, as it turns out, unless you're lactose intolerant. Of course, in that case, it's a terrible strategy. But John Fraser, thank you. Journalist and broadcaster John Fraser, reviewing number five of a series of books uh, by a man called Mario Pretorius, uh, who uh, the latest one is The Unconventional CEO's Destiny. Um, and yeah, it is a different way of looking at the world of business. Therefore, I suppose, if uh, you are stuck in a rut and you want to sort of jolt yourself and your teams out of that rut, um, then certainly uh, there are uh, some good lessons. I mean, one of them is you know, another, one piece of valuable advice, says John Fraser in his review, is be prepared to fail, but also learn the lessons of that failure. Every plane crash makes flying thereafter safer. It's a tragedy to lose lives in equipment, but it's ameliorated by the system getting to understand the reasons for events. And so if you survive the event, you should be better off as a result. But the worst CEOs, the worst leaders, the worst managers, I mean, this goes beyond CEOs. This is people in management level, are people who fail to listen and learn, people who fail to ignore advice, and people who think they know better, therefore don't listen to staff. And I've got countless examples of companies that have advanced dramatically because somebody in the business has had a bright idea and the CEOs had the the good sense. I talk about it in the book Genius and in the, the Nando's episode particularly of the podcast series, of the, the Genius One podcast series. Um, and you you get a very clear sense that if you are prepared to listen to the little people who are at the, either at the shop front or they are in the factory or they simply have a good idea. Very few CEOs will counter any sort of ideas from from the little guys. So I think that is a really good piece of advice. And it's um, theoretical and it is, he calls indirect warfare. You've got to outsmart your business opponents, bold, imaginative and cheeky tactics. And again, I see that play out across so many of the genius stories as well of people that I've observed over the last 20 years. People have built their great businesses out of South Africa and have taken some of those smart ideas global. So, yeah, lots of books are really boring. Uh, Mario Pretorius's book apparently brings a, a breath of fresh air. But be, be prepared to be challenged. Be prepared to be challenged. I suppose that is, if you get a book and you're not being challenged by the book, 
Then why are you reading the book in the first place? Aha! After Eyewitness News, now at half past seven, Janine Ahlers, the Academic Director, Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Coaching at the UCT Graduate School of Business. In studio with me tonight, how... I make money. That is the feature. And uh, we're going to talk about the world of coaching. She is a certified integral coach. Huh? What does that mean? Uh, we'll find out. The academic director of the Center for Coaching, which is situated at the UCT Graduate School of Business. So if you've ever considered coaching as a hustle, as a profession, as a commitment, or just getting the services of a coach, this will be invaluable to you uh, because she is a global thought leader. We're talking coaching this evening. Janine Ahlers is the Academic Director and Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Coaching at UCT at the Graduate School of Business. How I Make Money brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. Now, I was told by a mutual acquaintance that I should talk to you about coaching. Um, and this, this he was a, he's a disciple of coaching. He's worked in the corporate sphere and he's doing consulting work. And he's going, oh, you must do coaching. And I had uh, p- other people on the call with me roll their eyes at coaching. So I went and did a, not a particularly deep dive, more of like a shallow racing dive into the world of coaching and ran screaming from the Internet because the, it is an industry, sadly, fraught with all kinds of fly-by-nights. And I said to John Latham earlier today on Cape Talk, uh, I said to him, all kinds of charlatans and snake oil salesmen. It feels like a place that, you know, you, you, you walk across the street and you can become a walking-across-the-street coach. Um, it, it is, a, I think, quite a difficult industry in which to be taken, to, to be identified as being serious about it. It is indeed, Yes. Okay, so take me through it. I mean, how do you then shape coaching in a way that is treated seriously? Because lots of businesses, lots of leaders in business do look for coaching. Well, I'd say there's a reason they look for coaching. And that is because coaching done well actually does make a difference. It can truly, truly help people. I think where the snake oil salesman and that approach came in is people felt, well, it looks so easy to do. Um, and if I just have a bit of advice here and I'm listen to you a bit, actually, quite often people can unstick themselves. So we call that problem-solving coaching. And it can be very um, a, a sympathetic ear, a friend you're sitting next to, a good line manager. You can sit and listen. You ask a few questions, and the person goes, oh, that was amazing. That was so helpful. Thank you very much. I'm a genius. Yes. I'm a genius. Well, and I'm a coach, yes. right? See, I'm such a coach because everyone comes to me to ask me for advice. Now, those are people we call good listeners. Um, yes. And uh, and my understanding, my elementary understanding of coaching is 99% of coaching is shutting up. And allowing that person with occasional prompts and occasional prods and occasional nudges, perhaps, to find the solution to their own problem. So clearly being a good listener is an essential attribute. Absolutely. And uh, I'll tell you, a lot of people who come on our courses after the first day, they go, you know what? I thought I was a good listener, but I'm not really. I now realize. So... Yes, I think so. Absolutely. That is the core foundation is good listening. There are a number of skills that are, you would think, easy to do that make for the core of a good coach, which is listening, um, open-ended questions. Uh, But then there's there's a, a trick that happens over there, and that is, can you listen without judgment? And that's why 20 years later, 
I've been in this um, profession for over 20 years. I still have to work on it regularly and check myself. Am I truly listening without judgment? Because sometimes don't you want to sit there and go, are you serious? Really? (laughs) You think that's a problem? Grow up. Get out there and face your demons. Occasionally, I'm sure you must think it, but you can't possibly express it. (laughs) You can't express it. And the trick is to know you're thinking it. Ah, and then so it's the allowed. Trick is, You're allowed to think it. Okay. Well, yes. If you can then take a breath and let it go and then listen again with a fresh ears. That's well, what's hard. Do we understand listening, actually, as a concept? Because I think there's listening. Uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm, mm, oh, oh, that's one part of listening and affirming the person's issues or whatever the case is. But listening is a massively true listening and, and and constructive listening is a massively active process because mm-hmm. you're engaging in every single aspect and tone and timber and content in the words that are used in the position that the person is taking. You've really got to be alert to every signal that a human is sending. Mm. And not only with our ears. So we often will talk to our coaches who are studying with us. We'll say, listen with your eyes. And also notice that we have mirror neurons in our nervous system. The body has the capacity to align on an, on, with what they call mirror neurons so that you listen with your whole nervous system. So we listen with our bodies as well, which is way beyond body language. We're not talking body language. But, you know, I, I for example, if I'm tuned in to the person I'm coaching, I will get goosebumps just before they have an insight, just before. And you can see it building. They're coming to a realization, and their eyes are getting a bit bigger, and they're going, ah, 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 <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> There's a moment. I don't know. I, d- I don't often see – I don't always see something, but I sense it. Okay. Mm. No, there's a signal being sent or whatever. There's a signal yeah. somehow, yeah. so we know. But that takes years uh, and a lot of practice. And also not to preempt the signal because the excitement when something is building, you're going, you see, you got it. And they go, well, got what? And you've broken the magic, I suppose. <laughs> There's always that risk of being a little bit too active as the listener. Indeed. Plus, you don't know what they're going to get because you're listening without judgment. So you're not there to push them to a solution you want them to get to. And you're not there to um, uh, maneuver them into seeing what you want them to see. But that's the the big distinction, isn't it, between mentoring yes. and coaching. Coaching is appears more passive, although it is a very active process. Mentoring is, well, I mean, I was in your position. What I did was this. I think you should go and try the same thing. Off you go. Come back next week and tell me what you did. Exactly. Um, that sort of thing. Whereas coaching is, so how do you feel? And what do you think you should do about it? <laughs> <laughs> well, amongst other things, yes. But that is the key difference between mentoring and coaching. And I'll, I'll say to all my coaches, who's your mentor? And, and make sure that they, I'll coach them into developing the capacity to ask for help and support. So that would be the difference between a coach who's, who's well-trained, doesn't look at fixing the problem. A coach will, will look at what is it about how this person is thinking or feeling or in engaging with the world that causes them to be stuck right there which you don't know as the coach because you're not that person. So that person has to start to build the insight. And then what is it that they need to do differently yeah. that will allow them to address the issue? So, so at the core of it as a coach, 
certainly an integral coach, you're looking at developing your coach's capabilities so that they can address things for themselves. How, how and why did you get into coaching? Ah, ah um, synchronicity. There we go. Yes. So um, I landed up working at the business school after many years of feeling quite empty and not not sure what to do. Did with you myself. work in corporate before? What, what I did. So I, I I did a BA at university. I was told when I left I was completely unemployable, completely because I couldn't type. And so uh, my violin teacher, because I played the violin since I was six, said, "Why don't you um, audition for the national orchestra?" Which I did. In those days, it was packed and mm. SABC orchestras, just combined. And I didn't get in as a musician, but I got in as a orchestra organizer. So I had to run around organizing 120 musicians, and I learned a lot about human beings and how to cajole people into doing things they don't want to do. So I think that was probably… Particularly creative human beings, people who are not (laughs) used to being told what to do. They're very good at following the notes on a page, but don't tell them when to turn up and how to turn up and just how much, I don't know, interpretation to put into, into into the script. Exactly. And then, but after three years, it was like, I've been there, done that. Uh, I was doing as much as I was playing and organizing and it didn't, wasn't enough. So I thought I'll get a real job in the real world, which is what musicians call the corporate world. So is it the real job? So again, I was unemployable, apparently, but I answered an advert in the paper for a printing company in Boysen's Reserve. And I drove there and I th- and I thought, I will never, I cannot possibly work in this company. So I was very difficult in the interview and I demanded double my salary at the orchestra that I thought was well paid. And uh, they gave me the job. <laughs> I think I was probably, because, yeah, I now, I think it was a 4,000 rand a month or something, Oof. you know, uh, vast. And then that was corporate. So I started working there and I kept being offered opportunities mainly in the human resources space, and then uh, to open a branch here in Cape Town doing um, the investor relations or the annual reports. So I made a point of visiting every FD in Cape Town, <laughs> doing research on yes. what, how to make a good report. And that lasted 10 years, but all the time I was feeling empty. And I was kept looking, so I kept working harder, trying different portfolios, managing differently. I was convinced if I became a director of this company, I would feel complete. I became a director, and I felt very incomplete. It did not help. I tried everything. Um, I went to study an MBA. Uh, I, I, yeah, I kept myself very busy. And eventually, I realized um, this is still not working. Had you had any coaching at that point? Had you had any mentorship at that point? Were you reading, um, trying to figure out what to do next? Or were you just putting your head down and, and, and running like a bull in a china shop? I was a very ambitious um, running person, determined to climb that ladder and make my mark. And no coaching, uh, no mentoring, no. No, no, I had informal mentoring from the company. So what was the catalyst then that got you into the world of coaching? <clears throat> well, I got... I went back to the GSB where I'd done my MBA. Okay, that's connection, right. And I was offered a job of teaching company analysis, which is on the MBA program. And um, they gave me an office and said, you know the course because you did it 10 years ago, so teach it. That's how one gets into academia. (laughs) I always wondered. I always wondered. 
Well, so, to, but um, I started, and that's when I uh, asked this person who was an ex-consultant to come and help me. His name is Craig O'Flaherty. And he came in and he helped me on the course as a guest lecturer. And he said he's studying coaching. And I said, what is that? And he said, well, uh, let me explain. And his vision was to start a center for coaching in Africa, the first one, because at that in back in 2001, no one had heard of coaching. No. It's what sports people do. I mean, you, if you're a tennis player, exactly. you get a coach to improve your serve. You get a coach to improve your headspace. Um, but, I mean, in, in some corporates, I, I forget his name. I was trying to remember this in a conversation on Saturday. The cop doctor at first round was like the most famous person. And he'd, he'd, he'd done when the, when the Proteus played cricket. Um, he was, they were, he was the, the guy and they helped guide them and stuff. And there was just a sense that there was definitely a gap in the market. There was definitely a need. Uh, for people to be guided to, you know, just be better humans, to think differently, to be open to ideas, whatever it is that uh, they were struggling with. We're talking this evening to Janine Arles, who is the Academic Director and Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Coaching at the UCT Graduate School of Business. She's very kindly come to us this evening. She's got a whole cohort beginning tomorrow uh, to go through her programme, but has given us some time this evening. Uh, We'll get back to her in a moment. Janine Alice is Academic Director and Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Coaching at UCT Graduate School of Business. How does coaching go from my initial perception of it, which was anyone can be a coach, there are lots of these short courses and everyone is offering similar looking things that are clearly, clearly not worth any tangible value in the real world. How do you position what you do at the Graduate School of Business versus what is available in 10,000 places on the internet, which is of little reputable value Mm. as coach training yeah Mm. so one of the big differentiators is the fact that um, we've aligned with the international coaching federation which the icf which does accredit coach schools and they're becoming they've become more strict so we just had to jump through a whole bunch of hoops to get um sorted out there because initially, first, when you proposed this to the Graduate School of Business, they went, you want to do what? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yes. That's what people wear hemp do. Mm. <laughs> yes. I was told I was ruining my academic career. And I said, well, well, because I, they needed an academic director. for." Uh, so the GSB said, look, you can run these programs as an independent company, the Center for Coaching, under Exec Ed. And um, we will associate with you so that we can disassociate if it doesn't work. <laughs> so we said, all right, that's a good, good idea. And I'm the fulcrum. I'm the academic link because okay. I'm employed by UCT and a director at the center. Okay. So that's how we keep credibility. So the first thing is credibility. Um, always look at the coaching school and say, w- where is it accredited? Um, so our material, for example, comes from San Francisco, from the USA, one of the longest standing uh, coach education schools in the US, New Ventures West. That's where the source of our material comes from. So it's got a track record, it's got a history, it's got a methodology. Then look at the other professional accreditations like the ICF, um, which nowadays is most people in South Africa have heard about it. It's, it's very well known here. Another thing is the university. I mean, we, we are you know, really thorough. So the Faculty of Commerce would never accredit our courses if we couldn't jump through all the hoops. You know, the literature review of this, it took me like four years to get all the literature research done to to look at the grounding of 
for example, our approach, which is integral coaching. Um, so there's a lot of richness and depth and um, academic standing behind your model, whereas some coach schools are just – it's a model that somebody's made up, a consultant who has made up a, th- a thing and a flow, and then they throw in a bit of this and that and how to listen, and they call that coaching. So look at the academic rigor of what it is you, you're working with. But then also how are you taught? So, for example, we work on the premise that two tracks learning. You need to, of course, learn the skill of how to coach, but you also need to learn about yourself because you, the human who, who are doing the coaching, you actually… You're imposing yourself on other people and they are assuming, presumably paying money for you to improve their outcomes. So you better know yourself fairly well. Yes. You better, yeah. And a lot of people arrive on our doorstep, like our 40 that are starting tomorrow, thinking they're going to learn a technique to apply to others, only to discover that the training um, involves first applying all of those insights and those models and that theory to yourself. Then you apply it to each other, and then you go out and apply it to another human. So, so there's a learning process where we take, we take uh, adult learning theory really seriously. So... Um, Adults learn best when they're in a safe environment, when they don't feel there's a threat of judgment or ridicule. We do a lot to keep that in and with a lot of um, support and encouragement whilst insisting on rigor and depth. Um, no, it's, a really interesting, it's a really interesting space. And I, found, I find coaches are uh, – chatting to a CEO the other day who's brought a coach into, into his business – and this person is seeing everybody in the business. It's uh, several hundred people and is really, I mean, there's other clients outside because you've got to be objective and you've got to see other people, you know, you've got to, you know, not get get caught up in one in one entity. And you just watch the interactions between this coach and the people. And it's a really interesting dynamic because people are hungry, hungry for guidance. And for all of the, the stuff that's in books, all the stuff you can find on YouTube, all of the stuff that you think you know, People really are looking for answers, and that, um, and I think that the role of coaches within organisations is probably in its in, in its embryonic embryonic stages in many companies in South Africa. Well, um, so first of all, a coach won't give guidance and give you answers. It's what they're looking for, though. They're yes, looking for the guidance and answers. They're looking for development. development. That's the point. Yes, they're looking for development. People want to grow. They want to have meaning. They want to have purpose in life. So more and more organizations are actually coming to us. I've had I don't know, three inquiries this week from major corporates who are looking at... And it's only Monday. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> don't say that, yes. But it, well, looking for in-house coaches... Yeah. Uh, no, looking for training to develop an in-house coaching capacity. Should coaching be in-house or should it come from the outside? I, mm. I, I'm, you, know, you want to immerse somebody in your company for a period of time, I think. But to have in-house coaching, you start getting groupthink. You start getting, I don't know. And then you're part of the corporate structure. Are you independent? Can you be trusted? How, you know, th- I, I wonder about the independence of the coach or the perceived independence of a coach within an environment. In, uh, so over the last 20 years, we've supported a lot of companies to do just that. And what we've discovered is that um, some organizations, you can get an in-house coach as a cadre of coaches who are line managers who coach outside their 
divisions, which can be very helpful and effective. Okay. It's not the same as an external coach. You won't get the same level of depth of sharing. <clears throat> you probably, an in-house coach is probably not going to do deep personal developmental coaching, 12 sessions over the year. And it feels a bit more orchestrated and, uh, and it's pushing you in a direction rather than this is the way we do things around here. So let me come and coach you on how to do that sort of stuff rather than the let's make you a better you know, let's make you better at who you are and what you do. No, uh, I, mm, I no. would hope not. No, okay. no, I, I would, I'd hope an, an internal coach has been properly trained is not going to come with an agenda to get you to do what the company wants you to do. Then nobody's going to trust them. Um, an internal coach is somebody who can be deployed, ideally not amongst their own staff. Yeah but to help people get unstuck. And they would do what I would call either situational coaching or competency-based coaching. So we teach in a two-day course situational coaching. We call it a leader's coach. You can get a cadre of in-house coaches quickly in two days with additional support afterwards. You can really catalyze a coaching approach in your leadership style. You want to slightly richer capacity within certain line managers who want to do multi-session coaching of people within the organization, that's competency-based coaching. We would take six months to develop that capacity for you. And that is where you can work with someone uh, still on a kind of level that a person would be prepared to share with you, but to develop their capabilities, mm. perhaps as a, let's say they've been promoted, you want to support them like that. Uh, develop um, leadership capabilities and work with them there. Then the de the true developmental coaching, which our professional coaches do, which have been another year of coaching, so that's at least two years of study, those caliber coaches are, I would say, probably best external coaches because you're going in, you're spending 12 sessions, which is about nine to 12 months with somebody. You're working with them in a real shift in their way of being. Actually, you're working with the actual way of being. It's a fascinating world. Thank you, Janine Ellis, who's the Academic Director and Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Coaching at UCT Graduate School of... The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.